the world's presuppositions are so radically different than God's. The view that our culture has on something is so radically different than God's view on something. And specifically, we dealt with the fact that um, man wants to cage men to punish them. And in God's economy, there were no cages for men. There was retribution or restitution in God's economy. Never the caging of a man. We saw how abhorrent the caging of men is. And uh, then we just started getting into another huge presuppositional difference between God's view on thing and our culture's view, and that's egalitarianism. Uh, egalitarianism is where we have a culture which wants to erase all distinctions between male and female. They want to say that anything a man can do, a woman should do, and anything a woman should do, a man should be able to do. And it's gotten so bizarre that even ABC and other major news outlets um, where this woman had an operation to change sex, then got pregnant, and they still were saying that it was a man pregnant with a child, even though it was a woman. That's how bizarre and how strongly they want to impose this on the culture. And unfortunately, we've seen most Christians, and most Christians end up embracing anything the culture imposes on them because they hear nothing different from their pulpits. Um, they don't hear anything different regarding you know, God's view of punishment other than what they've known, come to know here in America. And it's no different when it comes to um, the egalitarian issue. The Christians, by and large, embrace an egalitarian mindset. In fact, there's a whole theology called Christian feminism theology that I've preached against here that is promoted within Christianity. If you've never even heard about it, Technically, I can guarantee you, you've been affected by it practically, because it's throughout Christianity. And uh, you may recall, I was just getting into that and kicking hard on that, and then, you know, we ran out of time, and so I stopped, and I said I would be writing an article, and the article's on the back table if you didn't get to see it already. Uh, The article I wrote was entitled, Palin and America's Manhood Deficiency. And it caused no small stir this week. In fact, it was posted on Covenant News to begin with. It's posted on at least 20-some other sites that I know of now. Could be far more than that for all I know. And uh, Jim Rudd from Covenant News told me is number four in the country for news sites on the hits on that story. And I believe it, given the emails that have come trouncing our way. The website on our church has been... Huge, hundreds and hundreds of hits on our website, especially for the sermon, a refutation of the debased theology of a monstrous regiment of Christian feminists. That sermon has been hit hundreds of times this week. So it caused no small stir. Uh, The emails that I've gotten back, about 50-50, about 50% of the Christians who are writing to me, can't thank God enough that somebody put something in writing and talked about this because it was driving them crazy too. The other half, you know, had all kinds of crazy stuff to say to me, Um, crazy unbiblical things, even though they were trying to use Scripture to make their point, and downright nasty things that couldn't even be repeated from up here. So it caused a huge stir. In fact, it ended up being talked about on a lot of Christian talk shows this week. Every person, I don't know how many of you got to hear it, every person except one who called in supported Palin running for office and thought that anyone who suggests otherwise that men should not be rallying around her and voting for her, they just thought that was bizarre, absurd, insane. Who would even have such a thought? That's how far gone our culture is regarding the thinking of God on the matters of the differences between male and female. How many of you didn't get to read the article yet? Do you people have email? What world do you live in? <laughs> caves, caves. <laughs> Anyways, we have copies on the back table. Maybe I'll read the article just so you know what I said since there was such a huge number of you who didn't read it. The title of my article is Palin in America's Manhood Deficiency. You can get a copy on the way out later. And I have a scripture verse at the top of the article. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. 
O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. My article says, After watching a week of ridiculous attacks on Sarah Palin, which so clearly exposed yet again the rank hypocrisy of the left and their lapdog media, I was almost ready to vote for McCain and Palin myself. Almost. But I won't. I was never keen on McCain to begin with, and his decision to add a woman to his ticket sealed my decision. I won't vote for them. Why? Because I'm a sexist, as many accuse? No, but because I'm a theist. I believe in the God of the Bible, and I want to see my life conducted according to his word, and the life of our nation reflect the teaching of his word. I will not throw my vote behind the Christ-hating, egalitarian agenda of the socialist elitists of this nation. Egalitarianism, as defined by the elitists, is designed to erase all distinctions between males and females from society. If you have not noticed this agenda pushed in our society, you are either hopelessly naive or just plain stupid. I could give examples from every aspect and quarter of our culture. From the time they are young boys, the onslaught to effeminize, neuter, and rob males of their manhood begins in this culture and continues relentless upon them till the day they die. The agenda creates confusion in males regarding what exactly their role as men is. The agenda results in rampant male irresponsibility. God's word is clear that men and women have distinct roles in which they are to function, both being dear and important to the design of God. Nevertheless, I regularly run into Christian couples who have no idea that, biblically, there are distinctions for men and women. They have no problem with the man staying home and the woman being the provider. They pompously challenge me, as they condescendingly look at me as though I'm some kind of cultural Neanderthal, to show them one scripture which states the woman is to stay at home and the man is to go out and provide. This is how bad the confusion is in our nation, even among those who should know God's ways. I quickly point out to them Titus 2.5, where scripture teaches that the older women are to admonish the younger women to be, among other things, quote-unquote, homemakers. In 1 Timothy 5.14, the scripture declares that the younger widows are to, quote, marry, bear children, and manage the house, unquote. You can't get much more C-spot run than that. Men, on the other hand, are told they have denied the faith, quote-unquote, and are worse than an infidel, quote-unquote, if they do not, quote-unquote, provide for their families, 1 Timothy 5.8. The egalitarian agenda has been pushed in this nation for about 100 years now and is historically rooted in socialism. The suffrage movement, wherein women obtained the right to vote, was manufactured by socialists who, because of the Christian consensus in the country at that time, guardedly used Christian words and dress to move their God-hating agenda forward. You can go to countless pro-abortion and pro-homosexual lesbian websites today which boast of their roots being founded in the suffrage movement. Today, almost all people including Christians, cannot fathom what caused these cultural Neanderthals to even think that a woman should not be allowed to vote. Truth is, they had a plethora of reasons. For example, the agenda was to, quote-unquote, liberate women to vote and thus, quote-unquote, denigrate the role of men as heads of their homes as their own wives could now vote against them regarding matters of public policy. Hence, Christian people opposed suffrage because it was viewed as an attack upon the structure of the Christian family. This is a huge presuppositional and theological matter. The socialists, statists, humanists, the God-haters, have always hated God's order for family and spend their lives trying to destroy the Christian concept of family and to redefine family to what they think family should mean. The suffrage movement was part of that process for them, and Sarah Palin running for vice president is a continuation of that process. The leftists are just mad because they wanted their girl to be first. But most people on the right have become socialists themselves, hence the pom-pom waving for Sarah. John McCain and the Republicans will now use the Christians to further this God-hating agenda in the earth, and most Christians, being devoid of a biblical worldview, will not even recognize how they are being used. There is something unnatural and perverse about men rallying around a woman to lead them. 
But an effeminized church leads to an effeminized nation. Our scripture text at the top of this article makes it clear that women in leadership is a sad commentary on the state of the nation. Women should not be in leadership when it comes to matters of public policy. The man is the head of the home, and by extension, men are to lead the nation. Men are to lead in the home, in the governance of the church, and in the governance of the nation. Men being led by women is also a sad commentary on the state of manhood in a nation. Many point immediately to Deborah, but the truth is she was not the norm, hence her being the one thing to which people always point. But even Deborah understood that her being in leadership was abnormal and a sad commentary on the state of manhood in Israel. In Judges 4.9, after Barak refuses to fight unless Deborah goes with him, Deborah responds by saying, quote, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman, unquote. God makes it clear through Deborah that women leading and men abdicating their God-given roles and responsibilities are shameful things. I do not know if Sarah Palin is a Deborah, but I do know that I do not like the machinations of man that I see trying to bring the process about. I do know as a Christian man I will not vote to put a woman in the number two leadership spot of our nation. I am not one of these Christians who have to have a perfect candidate whom I agree with on every iota, but I will not be fodder for a political agenda when such a huge principled presuppositional matter is at stake. Listen, this egalitarian agenda helped bring us to the corrupt, listless place our nation finds itself. Furthering this agenda by voting for Palin will not rescue this nation from its demise. It's part of the cause, not the cure. For those who are horror-stricken that Obama might get in with such thinking as mine being propagated, let me tell you, our nation is worthy of Obama, just as it is worthy of a female leader. The state of our nation is rebellion against the Lord. The state of manhood in our nation is at an all-time low as evidenced by the tolerance and proliferation of homosexuality. The state of the church is abysmal. So don't worry, calm down. I assure you, there are plenty of Christian feminists and effeminized Baracks in this present American Christianity to carry the vote for McCain in November. That's the end of my story. It caused a huge stir. And um, as I said, a number of... Christian shows talked about this this week. It's a hot issue. All but one person who uh, supported Palin couldn't understand how anybody could be such an idiot as to not support her and to this this draconian patriarchal system, you know, that some Christians ad- adhere to, how horrible it is. Let me tell you, it's a biblical system. Are there abuses of the system? Of course there are. Because where man is, anything man's involved in, gets messed up. (laughs) That's just the way it is. So are there men who abuse their God-given role and abuse what God set forth? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean we go and run over and embrace what the world teaches. I had a pastor write me and bringing up Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 saying, see, we're all equal in Christ. It's okay for a woman to run for political office and to be in leadership over men politically. In civil government realm, it's okay. It's just not okay in the home. It's not okay in the church, but it's okay in the political realm. Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What's the context? The context is our right standing before God. Our right standing before God. When it comes to obtaining right standing before God, it's the same for everyone. Whether you're rich or poor, white or black, male or female, Jew or Gentile, it's the same for everybody. It's Christ and Him crucified. It's our sole approach to the Father. Amen? That's the context. And... The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this, also wrote in Titus and Timothy, the places I quoted in my article, 
where you see clear, distinctive roles for men and women. So there's no problem here with my position, which is 328's dealing with how we obtain right standing with God, and yet we still have clear, distinct roles in how we live our lives. They're the ones who have a problem because if they want to commit an act of eisegesis and read into the text something that's not there and say that somehow this verse makes it okay for women to be in leadership over men within the civil government realm, then what do they do with all these other verses where it speaks and shows that women have a clearly distinctive different role than men in regards to how they are conduct their lives, what their function and purpose is in the earth? I wrote here, I said... Um, to the producer of the One Christian Show, I said, your article brings up a good point. It was the point Clara brought up immediately also, which was uh, the point Clara brought up when she first heard about it was her children. It's just amazing to me, I wrote and said to her, it's just amazing to me how readily Christians dismiss Scripture and God's norm for something that is a maybe, i.e., Palin being a Deborah. None of the people of God had to decide what they quote-unquote felt was God's will and vote for Deborah. Because they're all calling into the show, I just feel that she's a Deborah. God's raised her up. That's what I feel. Well, you know what? None of the people ever had to vote for Deborah. They never had to vote and say, God, I know this is an abnormality to your will. (laughs) And vote for Deborah. I go on, I say she was put in by God himself without them having to vote to embrace something that is clearly not the norm of God's will. And again, Palin is a sad commentary on the state of this nation and the men who reside in it. This matter hasn't been used to encourage men to begin to act in their God-given roles, however. Instead, everyone is trying to say, of course this is normal, of course it's okay. This is a huge point. I was talked to someone yesterday who um, called me about my article and was um, worked up about it. And they were, I'm going to write something in response. They said, go ahead. I'll gladly write something in rebuttal if you say something stupid. I said, let me tell you, here's the thing you need to key in on if you are going to write an article. You need to key in on the fact that no one's telling men that this should be a wake-up call to them that they're not being men. They're not. You listen to the Christians, they're all saying the same thing. Of course it's okay. Of course this is normal. They've all accepted egalitarianism. Like Christians are so far, so far a part of this world, so conformed to the image of this world, they don't even know how to have God's thoughts anymore on something as basic as differences between a man and a woman. And now it's gotten to the point where we don't even know what the role of a man is when it comes to sex. Or the role of a woman when it comes to sex. 76% of evangelical youth in this country believe that homosexuality is okay. 52% of evangelicals of all age think it's okay. Do you see the dissent we're making? Is this like a messed up deal? You think this isn't a big deal? This is huge. Huge. And that's why there's so much consternation directed towards me about it. Because it messes with their whole little world. You ought to see the emails I got from women all over this country with their big mouths saying their ding-dong things to me. It was enough to make you vomit. And then the one that even bothers me more is the effeminized males who write to me to carry water for the egalitarianist agenda. It'll make you sick. Maybe I should bring some to church next week and you can read through them and just see how far gone this culture is. I'm talking about the Christians in it. So no one's used this as an opportunity to encourage men, look, This is a bad thing. This is a sad commentary on the state of manhood in this country. Men. No, rather, they're all just trying to convince everybody, this is the way, who would even think such thoughts? And then people bow to it. 
You know, they can't handle the pressure. I can handle the pressure because I know what God's word clearly teaches. I go on in my little email to her. I say, everyone is ready to sacrifice her children. Talking about Palin's children. Everyone is ready to sacrifice her children and biblical truth for their political needs and desires. That's what this is all about. I gotta have a Republican in there. I gotta make sure Obama won't go in there. And I don't mind hoarding myself out on such a huge presuppositional theological issue to make sure he doesn't get in. You vote for what's right. There is a decent man running, Chuck Baldwin. He is on the ballot here. You can vote for him. Why wouldn't you vote for him? He actually agrees with what the Word of God has to say on every area of life. Oh, that's right. He can't win. Obama might get in. That's what this is all about. Political expediency. They're willing to sacrifice her kids, her five kids, and biblical truth, just my mind, billion times more important, just so their political desires can be met. Talking to a couple earlier this week, they came to the conclusion they can't vote for either party because of this situation. And they were just heartbroken. I mean, they had voted Republican all their life. It's like going to church on Sunday to them. And they're not going to do it this time. Heartbroken. But thank God they have a love for biblical truth and they ain't going to be fodder for that agenda. Now, I know some people think this isn't a big deal. How do I know? Because people wrote me to tell me, how can you make such a mountain out of a molehill? If you think it's not a big deal, it's only because you're ignorant. You're ignorant of history and you're ignorant of the word of God. You have no idea what's been pushed upon us and why our culture is in the state it's in and what's been pushed in the last hundred years in this culture. And you're ignorant about what God's word has to say about men and women. That's the only way you can come to the conclusion that this is no big deal. It's just you're ignorant. I go on, I say, this whole matter strikes me as perverse and a sad commentary upon the state of the church. It reminds me of when the state was talking about drafting our daughters and just about every Christian thought that was fine too. Do you remember that four years ago now? They were going to resurrect the draft and this draft was going to include our daughters. For me, I already I find it abhorrent to begin with that they want my sons. To me, the state should be able to convince us of the justness of a cause so that we voluntarily fight. They should not, under the forceful arm of the state, be able to take us and make us fight for them. I didn't raise my sons to be fodder for their agenda, what George Bush and this filthy nation wants to promote around the world. I raised my sons to be in service to Christ Jesus, their king and savior. That's who I raised them to be in service for. Well, they didn't want just that, our sons. They wanted our daughters too, which I thought, okay, Christian men won't go for that. Listen to the Christian radio. They talked about this. What do you think? Hour long. All kinds of people calling, all men calling in. Every single man except one, and he didn't have any kids, he said. <laughs> all of them who called in were more than happy to give their daughters to the state for two years to be in the military. All but one. That's how far gone manhood is in this country. You ever see these men, my daughters, protecting our freedoms in Iraq? Ever see those? You, you know, like pull the guy out of his car and slap him in the face. Please don't shame yourself. Please don't shame all of us as men. It's abhorrent and disgusting that you're looking to your daughter to protect you. You sad sap. That's the state of the nation we live in. That's the state of Christianity we live in. 
It's the same type of thing. No one knows their roles. No one knows their distinctions. And they're mad about it too. Mad about it. Anyways, just wanted to give that little report. Get my article out. You know, I, I have this thing here called the rebirth of America. This was put out over 20 years ago, almost 23 years ago. This was, this, this was put out for free to like every home in America. Did you know that? By the Arthur DeMoss Foundation. Those of us who are older probably remember seeing this. Remember seeing this? Still got it on your shelf. Praise God. This thing is a treasure trove. Amen. Treasure trove loaded with good articles, good quotes, and good scripture regarding our nation. It's a treasure trove. Anyways, here 22 years ago, they understood, even back then, important presuppositional matters. They listed the myths that could destroy America. And they list 10 of them. The myths that could destroy America. Listen to these now. Number one is the battle isn't real. I mean, they hit it right on the head. That's one of the biggest problems we have in American Christianity today is most people don't even know there's a war going on. (laughs) I don't have a clue there's a war going on for the souls of men. They're so caught up with their personal peace and prosperity Christianity. War? Soldiers? Ambassadors of his law (laughs) and gospel? (laughs) What? These are all fresh thoughts to me. You know, that's how your average American Christian is. That's so whacked out. That's the number one myth. The battle isn't real. The fact that people don't even know it exists. Number two, life began with blind chance. Perfect. Evolution. It's a huge presuppositional matters. What you believe about these matters greatly affect how you conduct and govern your life. Evolution, number two. Number three, we can have morality without religion. Oh, I love to debate that with students on the campus. Number th- number four, whatever is legal is moral. It's a huge blind spot in this culture. They believe everything begins with man. Therefore, whatever man legislates must be right. <laughs> Even if it's in opposition to God's law. Number five, morality cannot be legislated. There's a huge lie that's been propagated down through the ages. It's still heard today. I run into it on the campuses all the time. I always bring up the myth of neutrality when that comes up to show them there is no law that exists that's neutral. All law has an agenda. Number six, the role of men and women is interchangeable. What did they hit here? These are huge presuppositional matters. Egalitarianism. They see it for what it is. The role of men and women is interchangeable. And they go into a little bit of the history of this agenda that's been going on for a 100 years where we try to make men into women and make women into men. Number seven, a fetus is not human. Abortion. They're huge matters. Number eight, we can ignore the ghost of Karl Marx. Yeah. You know how socialist our country has become? We're so socialist now, we wouldn't notice socialism if it came up and bit us on the end of the nose. Let's see, our government just took over Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Could you imagine if Chavez did that? (laughs) What we would be hearing about? That status, that fascist... A communist. Our country does it and everybody applauds. Thank you for saving our money. Oh, the stock market goes up. Oh, thank you. We have the biggest pack of blind hypocrites on the planet. We can ignore the ghost of Karl Marx. Myth number nine. Pornography is a harmless adult pleasure. This is said for years. They still say that kind of, do they still say these things? This was all said when I was growing up. And you're a dopey little kid, you know, teenager, you believe it. Oh yeah, it looks sense to me. <laughs> you know? 
And then God whacks you in the head, you get saved, and you see, wow, what a bunch of dumb thinking that was. And that's why I'm always left wondering about the Christians who still think like that. (laughs) It's like you don't... Myth number 10, the church should have no voice in government. Yeah, most Christians want to agree with that one. My point is simply, here's this book. These are huge presuppositional areas our nation is all messed up in, and we need to pray for our nation. We pray and we act, but today I'm in Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel's praying for his nation, Israel. And so I'm talking about the prayer part, how important it is to pray. And we're just going to go up to verse 19, because that's Daniel's prayer. And it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. What's this talking about here? Remember, God prophesied through Jeremiah that the children of Israel would be put into exile and carried off to a foreign nation. And that would last 70 years. Well, this time of history, it's about 536, 537, 538 B.C. When this is being written, when this time here is being talked about that Daniel's speaking of here. He's an old man now. He's in his 80s. Okay, he's in his 80s. Now, we know that Jerusalem fell in 587 B.C. So if you go by that, it's been about 50 years, but many of the Hebrews were taken into captivity long before Jerusalem fell. In fact, Daniel and the Hebrew children were taken into captivity in 604 B.C. So right now, we're about three years, three, four, five years, before 70 years will be up in Daniel's mind since the captivity started for him. You see what I'm saying? That's what's being talked about here in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel's looking at it from the perspective of when he was first taken into captivity in 604. Add 70 years on, what would the year be? 534. We know this was 536 to 538. We can get that narrowed down when uh, Daniel was talking about this happening to him where he, he was looking into Jeremiah's book because it's in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So we can historically figure that all out. So Daniel's thinking the 70 years are just about up. And so he begins to pray and beseech the Lord about that. And he may have been encouraged to pray and seek the Lord about it because remember the Babylonians had just been overthrown by the Medes and the Persians? Remember? Chapter 6. So this may have encouraged him to do so. He knew by looking at Jeremiah that 70 years was coming near to an end, at least from his perspective, when he was taken to captivity. And he was probably encouraged because he saw a change in the regime. So he decides to beseech God for Israel, who he knows is going to be coming out of captivity shortly. And it says in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He was serious about his prayer. Amen? This wasn't his morning devotions. Okay? It's good to have morning devotions. I encourage morning devotions. But sometimes morning devotions can get routine. Can they not? And you just kind of, yeah, do it because, yeah, it's good to do. This wasn't one of those prayer times for Daniel. He's serious about his time of prayer here. We can see he's serious because he's talking about sackcloth. He's talking about fasting, talking about ashes. He was serious about getting together with God. 
and beseeching him. Verse 4 says, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Extremely important. Isn't that how you start out your prayer? That's how you should always start out. Asking forgiveness for anything that you've done. Any sins you've committed. God, forgive me. That's the first thing I always do when I kneel down in prayer before God. It's make confession. And so he makes confession. He makes confession regarding himself and regarding the nation. O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. First thing he does is bring about humility and abasement. Prostrates himself in the presence of God, abases himself, humbles himself, makes confession for the sins which he has committed against God and the sins of the nation. Remember, we're all priests unto God now. All of us who've repented and believed in Jesus are priests unto God. First Peter makes that clear. We are a kingdom of priests. And as priests, we represent God to man, and we represent man to God. Okay? In other words, we represent God to man. We let man know about God, what his law is and what his great salvation is. We also represent man to God. We beseech God on the behalf of men. That's exactly what you see Daniel doing here, acting in his priestly role. He's representing God to man, but he's also specifically here representing man to God. Neither have we, verse 6, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. The unfaithfulness. O Lord, to us belong shame of face to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. If my people, which are called by my name, will turn from their sin, humble themselves. That's exactly what Daniel's doing here. Humbling himself in the sight of God, representing the nation and its desire to turn from sin. And we can do the same thing. We need to beseech God for our nation. Call upon him to grant repentance to our nation. Whether by cross or by sword, O oh God, bring repentance. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Amen. He recognizes the mercy of God and the justice of God. That God was merciful and that they weren't just obliterated from the face of the earth as a people. And yet that he was just because he judged them for their rebellion. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. What does he mean by written in the law of Moses, this disaster has come upon us? Remember in Deuteronomy 28, all the curses, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Remember, in Deuteronomy 28, the first 15 verses of the chapter talk about the blessings God will bring upon a people who live in obedience to his word. And then from verse 16, I believe it is, all the way to verse 68, the next 50-some verses, the next 50-some verses, 
we um, have all the curses that God will bring upon a people who live in rebellion to him. Think maybe God knows something about the nature of man. Only 15 verses for blessing if they live in obedience. 50 some verses of judgment and cursings if they live in rebellion. And one of the bad things that will happen to a people, a nation that lives in rebellion to God, verse 63, and it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among these, and among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. This was one of the curses, that they would be taken captive. And that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel, and that's what Daniel's bringing up here in verse 13. The fact that God did judge them, and they were given into the hand of a foreign power. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Notice the confession here. This is why it's so extremely important to call people to repentance, for people to see their sin. This was one of the great things of the rescue movement of you know nearly 20 years, 20 years ago now. Yeah, it is 20 years. This was, this was the starting point of the rescue movement where people began to interpose at the doors of the abortion clinics here in America. You know what the starting point was? Repentance. No one's sitting there pointing the finger at everybody else, but pointing the finger at their own selves. It's like when I talked to Clara and asked her what was going on down in Atlanta when she got back from going to the first rescue down there. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Her response to me was, what's going on, Matt, is the people of God are repenting. And the reason these babies are being killed, Matt, isn't because of the judges or the abortionists or the police. The reason abortion continues on, Matt, is because of me and you. Because we've done nothing to help these little babies. That's why it continues on. And I was immediately cut to the heart. Because she was right. It was birthed in repentance. All revival, all reformation has to be birthed in repentance. Has to be. The level to which you repent, even initially as a Christian, and then further on as you continue to walk with the Lord and you see areas of your life that are unlike Him, the level to which you repent will determine the level to which God's kingdom is built in your life. You just want to change a little? You just want Jesus as a band-aid? You just want to fix up a little bit? You know, it's gotten a little out of hand how I live. Yeah, that's all your Christianity will be to use. The level to which you repent will determine the level to which God's kingdom is built in your life. And that's why repentance is so important. Confession of sin and turning from it, extremely important. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. So he appeals to God on his namesake. Yeah, we did wrong. We've made your name a reproach to the peoples of the earth around us. But for the sake of your name, your city, Jerusalem, Forgive us. 
Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary which is desolate. And this needs to be our cry regarding Christianity and the Christian church, because Christianity and the Christian church in America today is a mess. It's a sad, abysmal institution. It's pathetic, and it's in utter disarray. Broken down, just as the temple and walls of Jerusalem were at this time. That's how our church is today. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. This is what we need to do, get together. Remember we did that a couple years ago? We got together, we had nothing up our sleeve, nothing left we thought we could do to help change the culture, to see a difference in our nation. Nothing left. And what did we do? We gathered together and we just cried out to God, cried out to him. We beseeched him to do a work in our nation. Amen? We confessed our sin, our lukewarmness, our indifference, our apathy, and asked God to begin to do a work in our own lives and in the life of our nation. Amen? That was a good time. For those of you who came to those prayer meetings, I'm sure you remember them. Darby still talks to me about them. She was just a little girl then. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy. Even Daniel in the Old Testament understood God only heard his supplications because of his mercy. In the New Testament, we know, of course, his mercy is found in whom? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? And through him, we can meet with the Father and beseech him. But here, even Daniel understood the mercy of God. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Perfect picture of the man in the temple, the two men in the temple, remember? The Pharisee and the tax gatherer. And the Pharisee trusted in his righteous deeds. And the tax gatherer trusted in God's mercy. And who was accepted of God? The one who trusted in God's mercy, not the one who trusted in his righteous deeds. You know, when we look at each other, we can feel pretty good about ourselves, our righteousness, our Christian life. You know, when you compare yourselves amongst others, don't you usually feel, I feel pretty good. I do. (laughs) I feel pretty good. But, you know, when you get into the Bible and you get into the Word of God, then you get a true reality check of who you are as a person. It's like a wake-up call often. I mean, you're naked before Him. It's important for us to understand our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Our righteousness is filthy rags. The mercy of God. Hallelujah. Verse 19 says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Hallelujah. He's serious about meeting with God. This is a huge deal to Daniel. He's an old man. He might not see when they come out of exile. He's beseeching God on behalf of his people. Remember, that's what all these prophecies, these dreams and visions are about. They related to the people Israel. And here's Daniel crying out for him. I just want to encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters. We need to spend time in prayer and cry out to the Lord too. We don't need to gather as a big group to do that. All that that can be done and that can be good. Amen? You can do it in the privacy of your home. You can do it wherever you find yourself. Gather your family together. It's important that we teach our children to be men and women of prayer. 
students of the scriptures. That's why family worship is so important, men, that you open the word of God to your family, to your wife and to your children and instruct them out of God's word. And we have some videos that are going to be going up, hopefully before the end of this year, showing family worship in the Chuela home. Because it's the biggest thing I always get from people. Well, if I could just see it done, you know. All right, so we're going to do it. We're going to allow people to come right into our privacy of our own, our privacy moments as a family, family worship, and observe. And hopes that it encourages others to have family worship in their home. Amen? Next month, I'm taking Jeremiah and Crispin away with me for three days. I try to do this every year just to seek God. Be alone with him as a man and seek him. Very important to do as a man, especially when, you know, you have a bunch of kids in the house. I don't live alone. (laughs) Why do I want to bring my sons who are now teenagers? Because I want them to learn that this is an important part of a man's life. An important part of a man's life is he gets alone with God and he seeks him. And so it needs to be with all our lives. We need to be men and women of prayer and seek God's face. You see the heart of Daniel here for his nation, our nation. I don't know how his nation could have been worse than ours. We're pretty bad here in America. And I know we can look pretty good when we compare ourselves with other countries. And I mean that sincerely and honestly. The vestige of Christianity that's held on in this country is way, way stronger and better than anything you see in Western European countries where Christianity once reigned. But again, when you compare yourself with others, you feel pretty good about yourself. When you compare yourself with God, you see how naked you are and how needy of a people you are. Let's stand up. We'll close in prayer.